This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. This is part five of the On Air Memoir Writing Workshop and I'm Stephanie Fruin. In 2019, I gathered around a very small table various groups of strangers who wanted to start writing their memoirs, or at least writing some of their personal stories for their families to one day read. They were generous enough to allow me to record them reading their stories and to share them on air with listeners like you. Given the current situation of COVID-19, I can't see me sitting around a table with workshop attendees for quite some time, so I thought I would conduct my workshop over the airways. The world might be in lockdown, but our stories are not. For many, the idea of writing a memoir seems arrogant, and the response I mostly get from people when I ask them if they'd consider writing down their life stories is, who would be interested in reading about my life? I've done nothing interesting, nothing important. I'm no celebrity or sports hero. But I think they're wrong. I believe every life is interesting, and committing that life to paper or some digital format to be forever remembered has a part to play in conserving our history for generations to come. Now more than ever, recording our history is incredibly important. We must make available for our children and their children information about our lives, lifestyles, health and habits, for who knows what clues lie in these stories as to what is to come in the future. So over the strange and uncertain COVID-19 time, I'll take you through the steps to get you writing your memoir. So far, our steps have taken you to writing about your name and a turning point in your life, a family holiday and your first car. We've discussed the importance of language and the style of writing. This time, I want to consider the tone and mood of writing. This is something that you probably aren't aware of while you're writing your stories, but when you read a story that's not your own, you'll definitely get a feel for the mood of the piece because it makes you feel a certain way or generates a reaction from you. Writing can make us feel many things in many ways, happy or sad, suspicious or cautious, positive about the world or downright depressed. The writer has influenced our feelings by the use of language and style which has produced a mood or tone in the piece. So how did they get that? When you're writing, your own personal mood and thinking at the time will influence the style and tone of your writing. Professional writers recognise that they may need to change their mood to get into a particular character's head or space, so they might do something to help them achieve that. They might go for a walk, put on particular music, maybe eat a particular food or look at a particular object or a painting. Something. Something that they just do. What I want you to do this week is to play around with your mood. One of the easiest exercises to do is to give yourself a topic to write about in a very quick 15 minute period. And while you're writing your story, smile. Put on a huge grin from ear to ear. Do not let it go, even when it starts to hurt. Continue to smile. Then after the 15 minutes is up, have a good look at your story. Have a short break. Go for a walk, have a coffee or a snack or something. Then after your break, Go back to the same story topic, and this time, write it again in another 15-minute period, but do it with a huge scowl on the face. Don't just repeat the story you've just written. It's the same story topic, but you're writing it with fresh words, fresh ideas, and you're writing it with a scowl, with absolute anger on your face and in your body. 
You're so angry you could hit someone. Have the biggest and ugliest angry face you could possibly conjure up and write your story until it hurts, only for the 15 minutes. Do it quickly. Don't think too much about it, just do it. Then compare the two stories you have written. Are they exactly the same? Or has the story that you've just written completely changed? Has the mood of it changed? Has your language and style changed? Did your physicality change when you were writing? Did you hold your pen differently? Did you pound the keyboard in a different way? Now that you've investigated mood, I want you to ponder your topic for this session. A prized possession. Do you have in your possession something that means a lot to you? It can be anything. A rock found on a beach. A piece of antique furniture given to you by a family member. Jewellery. Picture. Anything at all. But it really has to mean something to you. And it has to be an item that you would be affected by if it were to leave your possession in some way. Remember, your story shouldn't be too long, no more than 750 to 1,000 words. It doesn't matter if it is more than that, but if you just try to stick to a lower limit, that will make your life easier. And by giving yourself a word limit, you will stick to the story. You'll get rid of the waffle. Once you've written your story, read it out loud. That's the best way to pick up mistakes and edit it. There may be some of you, when you've done, you'd like to send it to me to have a read to offer you some feedback and by all means you can email it to me at mytaletotellnz at gmail.com. Coming up are examples of stories with the theme, a prized possession and also a picture that means something to me. Written and told by attendees of one of my workshops. So have a listen and you will see that every story is different. I'll have a different topic for you next time, so until then, get writing. My name is Isabel, my tale to tell. A picture that means something to me. We have a photo of two preschoolers sitting together in a park bench in the Auckland domain. It is autumn in the year 1981 and the golden leaves complement their golden skin. Sitting close together, leaning on their hands, their legs swinging. Sammy is smaller than Kara, although a year older at four and a half years. They are in our care for three months whilst their mum establishes herself in Pororua after spending a whole year away from her children. She had been in an abusive relationship and then had been left on her own to raise two children. She had been caught shoplifting and spent time in Borstal. Her whanau had abandoned her when she went against their wishes at the age of just 15. So she had no family support we met her when the authorities were seeking to have the children fostered until she got a home together for them. She looked formidable, her large frame dressed in black and with a tough stance as a bunch of social workers talked. I saw a tear in her eye and detected that she was a sensitive 20-year-old mum who missed her children. 
They had been taken into care and given to her partner's parents where they had been physically abused. Hence, they were back in care to be fostered. Sammy and Cara were our first foster children. They were high maintenance, with no boundaries. They had poor sleep patterns and would get up in the middle of the night, run around switching on all the lights. They ate as if it was their last meal. They were always hungry. So I let them eat as much cornflakes, milk and bananas as they liked. They soon learned that when they were very full, they didn't feel so good. We had no more problems with them acting like Oliver Twist. Every morning, as soon as they woke, they would ask, We go to our mum today? I would have to say, No, not today. They wanted hugs constantly. They used to run to me at the same time, copying each other, and fling themselves at me. In the three months, my weight dropped to six and a half stone, 41 kilos. Sammy went to preschool gym and Carla to kindergarten. We got them checked over by our doctor and once a month their mum and new partner would come up from Wellington and they would have the children for the weekend. They stayed in a motel nearby, arranged by social welfare. When we picked them up on the Sunday afternoon, I could tell that it was hard for this staunch young lady to let them go. It must have hurt her to see these two little mites jump into our car. Another month's separation. Amy, their mum, and I kept in touch by letter, and a strong bond was soon established as we sought to care for the children in her absence. She was a fantastic letter writer, and letters flew back and forth between Wellington and Auckland. Then it was time. Amy and her new partner came to take them home. The three months are etched in my memory, and for Robert and me, it was a baptism by fire as far as our first fostering experience was concerned. It was hard to say goodbye. We'd established a strong bond with their mother and partner, and of course the children. We were told by the authorities that our job was done. However, although there were long periods of no contact, through the years we've kept in touch. The photo of Sammy and Kara sitting on a bench powerfully reminds me, whatever happens, that Araha, the bond that is ours, cannot be broken. My name is Louise and this is my tale to tell. A picture that means something to me. The photograph is black and white. The moment is decisive. The decisive moment of this genre of photography. I am walking through the Shades Arcade. The year is 1989. There is a photograph on display in a shop window. The subjects are static. In a kiss, in a gentle embrace. The surrounding environment in the photograph is blurred and busy with the motion of other patrons and cars outside a cafe. 
This photo took my breath away the moment that I first saw it. I still recall vividly the impact it had on me, the feeling like a fist had punched right through my young heart. In my late teenage years, I had a direct internal response and reaction to this photograph. I had to have it. And so this photograph hung on my bedroom wall during the late 80s and early 90s. I don't think I was the only one to do this. I don't know where it is now. Possibly it was given away when my parents moved houses. The photograph, The Kiss, Hotel de Ville in Paris by Robert Duhaneau. Would I react in the same way to this photograph now? Perhaps my youth let me see it for what it was, the moment of connection, the sounds and the busyness of an urban city life in a foreign country. The popularity of this image in the late 80s and 90s makes the image seem a bit dated in my mind. But in truth, the image itself isn't. Popular culture alters how we see things as it begs, steals and borrows to make aspects of the past and our modern day culture relevant. Despite this, I am left with a wider sensory experience of what this picture means. A moment of static love in Paris, the backdrop of people and cars going about their business, avant-garde black and white photography being uber-fashionable in the late 80s and early 90s, and how this was reflected in the music videos of the time, reflected in the photographic teaching at fine arts schools. I remember the antipodean light that filtered through the glass atrium onto the beigey-orangey-coloured tiled ceramic floor of the Shades Arcade. The sounds of people's shoes on the tiles, including my own, as my breath was taken away by a decisive moment that had been taken some 30 years earlier in Paris, a lifetime away from the early 1990s antipodean world of Christchurch. They say that these are not the best of times They're the only times I've ever known And I believe there is a time for many... My name is Robert. This is my tale to tell. A picture that means something to me. My mind is drawn to a photo I took several years ago one day while driving back to Christchurch via the Lewis Pass. It was an ordinary day, much like any other to begin with, but today... Following us was a threatening storm. At a bend in the road, we pulled over and, looking back, saw these heavy clouds descending down over the mountains. Looking at them, it struck me as having a foreboding look about them, and I even felt a slight moment of fear that it might swallow us up. The air was heavy with cloud, but strangely still, which seemed to exaggerate the feeling. It was then I took the photo, not really thinking why I should, but it struck me as being significant. I've looked at this photo a number of times over the years and my perceptions have changed. Today I now look at the picture through different eyes. Now I see a scene of wonder at the power and majesty of nature, something far more powerful and greater than us, and so awesome to behold but as an essential part of sustaining all life on earth. Yet we know that after the storm, the clouds lift, the sun comes out and calm returns. My name is Karen, and this is my tale to tell. A possession or object to treasure... There was hush and a heavy silence. 
then quiet sobbing and despair, where there should have been a shrill cry, followed by joy and congratulations. What happened, darling? They were my first words to the baby girl who had just been placed in my arms. It was my plea for an answer to a question which would never be answered. No reason would be found for why our longed-for second baby had died inside me the night before she was born. I watched while the midwife washed and dressed our stillborn baby, tears slipping down her cheeks. There was a small cut on my baby's skin where the midwife's ring had caught it. We stayed in the hospital overnight in a room well away from the other mothers and babies. I hardly slept. Sienna Rose came home with us in a cane basket on the back seat of the car. No seatbelt required. We had her home with us for a week. She spent each night in a bassinet in our bedroom and each morning John would pick her up and bring her to me for a cuddle. Petra, who was almost four, would be there for a cuddle too. Friends visited and some stayed well away. I stitched hearts on a blanket to wrap Sienna in when we buried her and I wrote her a letter which went in the coffin beside her. We took photos and I cut a lock of her hair to keep. I insisted on telling family and friends myself. My words in each retelling became automatic so that after a while my voice sounded mechanical, unemotional even. Yet grief sat so heavily on my chest that at times I felt I could hardly take a breath. It was so unfair. I'd eaten well during my pregnancy and had never been a smoker. So how could this have happened? My husband, John, is Asian, and in Asian culture, new parents are supported by their parents or parents-in-law when a new baby is born, so my in-laws from Sydney were staying with us. John's brother and sister flew in from Sydney for the funeral, and my aunt and uncle came down from the North Island. My sister-in-law stopped halfway through a reading during the service, so choked up she couldn't continue, so I went up and finished reading it for her. I had packed Petra some snacks to eat during the funeral, and at the graveside we threw autumn leaves we had collected onto the coffin once it was lowered into the earth. It felt so strange having to choose a plot in a cemetery where we would eventually both be buried, and then burying our daughter there first. John's parents wanted to give us something special to remember Sienna Rose, so we organised for a lovely couple from Twinkletoes to come and take plaster of Paris moulds of her little hands and feet, which they mounted beside a photo of Sienna's hands folded over a white rose. On a plaque is her name and date of birth, 2nd of May 2003, and all of this is in a beautiful Rimu frame. It hangs on the wall in our bedroom where I can see it every day. When our boys were small, one of them asked why we'd cut Sienna's hands and feet off and hung them on the wall. When the earthquakes destroyed our house in 2011, quite a few pictures fell off the walls and smashed, but Sienna's frame was undamaged and it's on the bedroom wall in our rebuilt home. With so few mementos of our baby girl, this frame is very precious to me and is something I would be very sad to lose. Sienna would have turned 16 last month and I think of her every day when I look at the precious frame on our wall. Come away with me in the night Come away with me and I, I am Ruby and this is my tale to tell The camera that my father held My father married quite late He was 36 years old when he married my mother who was only 16 at the time he was the eldest in his family, 
the responsible one. It was my father who, at the young age of only eight years old, took his six siblings and parents and migrated from India to Pakistan on a train, leaving everything behind. Things were rough, and my father used to sell ice lollies during the day to help run the household. At night, my father used to study under the street lamp. I don't know when he slept, but somehow he managed to earn a bachelor's degree in commerce by studying on the streets. I think marriage for him was just another set of responsibilities with more mouths to feed. But in the era that he lived, he wasn't given a choice. It was his family's decision that he must get married, and they chose my mother as a suitable bride for him. He now had two households to run and not enough money in his pocket. It was then that my father took up photography as an additional vocation. My mother helped him with developing the photos. My parents didn't have money to hire a studio, so they would wait till we children went to sleep, and then they developed photos during the night. There was one time when my parents didn't sleep for three consecutive nights. In some ways, photography was a blessing because there are loads of black and white photos from our childhood. Some of them hand-colored by him, others developed in all kinds of pattern. I remember this photo with five circles, one in the middle and four on each corner with the photo of my mother in all of them. I do have his camera that he used in those days, a Yashica 44 or something similar. I have had this camera for years. It's been hidden deep underneath my clothes, far from my reach. I'd almost forgotten about it, though only a couple of days ago I've had to empty the chest of drawers and my hands have found the camera again. This is the first time I have touched the camera after my father has died. It feels strange to hold it in my hands and let it stir uncomfortable memories in me. The only time he seemed slightly happy was when we were studying. All his life he had worked hard, and this was the only way he knew how to be. His message to us? Having fun is a waste of time, and we should work hard like he did. In 2004, when I was living in Singapore, I invited him to come and stay with me for a couple of weeks. He told me that this was his first holiday in 14 years. He struggled to enjoy when I took him places, and he was stunned when I told him that I loved him and that I understood that he did the best he could in raising us. I don't think he knew how to respond. I feel his struggles when I look at the camera. I feel his unhappiness through the brown box that now sits on top of the chest of drawers in my bedroom. I feel slightly guilty when I have fun. I feel that he's looking through the camera right at me with his serious face and a frown on his forehead. I long for his smile. I'm filled with sadness at how hard his life was, and I wish I could replace these memories with moments of fun and laughter. But sadly, this hasn't happened. I think in keeping the camera hidden, I avoid healing his pain through me. Very rarely, though, I have opened the box and have had a peek inside. 
It's a beautiful camera. There's no viewfinder, just a screen at the top of the camera with two lenses at the front. From memory, the image appears upside down. To take the photo, one would hold it in both hands next to their belly and look down at the screen on top of the box. There's no button to take the shot, but instead a sort of a small lever that moves down. There's a click when it hits the bottom, the moment of the capture. It's an object of beauty, just like my dad. Through his dedication and hard work, he showed that it was more important for him to care for his family than to be happy himself. This was his expression of beauty, to make sure that his children have food to eat and an opportunity to go to school. I hope he's smiling at me from the heavens. I hope that he sees that his hard work has come to fruition. I hope that finally, in the afterlife, he's experiencing fun and laughter vicariously through me. I hope. Tired of living life in black and white. I'm Isabel, and this is my tale to tell. A treasured possession. Love is often an inadequate word to describe feelings between mother and daughter. As a child, I loved my mother because she was my mother, the first person in my life and the one whom I depended on for my survival. There have been many books written about relationships between mother and daughter. Many of my feelings lay buried within my small body and mind as a child. My mother was a Scot, sometimes fire and sometimes melancholy, dogged by ill health, as she put it. She had a weak heart from having rheumatic fever as a child, and depression and anxiety exasperated by bringing up two children in a cold, damp cottage, married to a reserved bachelor-type, Englishman many miles away from where she grew up. She was wary of people that she didn't know and didn't make friends easily. From an early age, my mother used me as her sounding board, telling me her troubles with my dad. Things like, I shouldn't have married him, what was I thinking? Sometimes my mother would send us to Coventry, not speaking to us for days, and we never knew why. Sometimes she would scream at us for making a loud noise, or for no reason. I was the elder daughter I felt responsible for my mum's unhappiness. I was at a loss as to what I could do. I realised that she was disappointed not only in me, but in life. As a teenager... If I was asked about home, I would say that my parents were unhappily married and I was a crazy, mixed-up kid. <laughs> it has taken me a lifetime to work through the impact of my upbringing, from low self-esteem to being closed down like my dad, who didn't react to my mother's erratic behaviour. I knew I did need to sort myself out, and slowly I did. At one time, I had reached the bottom of a deep, dark well of despair. From then, I was able to climb up and out. It took time. 
now, being on the other side of all the childhood stuff, has given me freedom from the harm and the anger and given me understanding of what my parents' lives were like and understanding and acceptance of myself. So what has this to do with a treasured possession? Well, one day when I was about 12 or 13, Mum went shopping by herself. She always took us with her. When she returned... She said she had been to an antique shop and bought a Victorian child's tea set. It was for me to keep. Not to play with, but as a keepsake. It was something tangible that she was giving me. I was stunned. It wasn't my birthday, and it was out of the blue. She didn't have anything for my sister, and she always gave us the same thing. I couldn't fully appreciate the significance at the time. My child's tea set is plain white, chunky china that once had a band of gold on the rims. Bits of gold are still visible. I remember that moment when my mum, who could never show me any affection, making a positive gesture towards me. Mum was full of regrets, always wishing life had been different. So it was out of character for her. I'm not sure that I thanked her. I certainly didn't hug her. We just didn't do that. Perhaps under all the bitterness, there was my real mum. The Victorian child tea set my mum gave me is my treasured possession. My name is Julie and this is my tale to tell. A picture that means something to me. This photo is very special because it is of the three generations. My mum, who has now passed, myself and my daughter Amelia when she was about four years old. We're all looking at the camera and we were rugged up as it was Mother's Day in May. When we got the photo, we got it printed. Amelia helped me choose the graphics. We chose flowers, a watering can, and pot plant. Very fitting, as Mum was a great gardener. She often won lots of prizes in the annual Green Park Flower Show for the decorative work in baking. A very talented Mum. The photo also has the words, Mother's Day. We love you zillions. Yes, indeed, we love mum, as a mum and a grandma. We loved her zillions. Zillions is much more than millions. Yes, it's a special photo, and I'd grab it if I had to race out of my home office for any reason in the future. The February Christchurch earthquake in 2011 was felt as if it was right under our house. It was like this big thump under us. It certainly chucked things around. When people say things get turned upside down, that was the perfect example. Things got turned upside down in my office. What a cluttered mess it was. I found my photo still in its frame with glass intact. Other items I thought were treasure were broken. I didn't care about the breakages, which were reflect on as just being stuff. The earthquake was a great reminder to us. 
use the good china and not save it for a special occasion. Those bloody earthquakes have had a devastating impact, not only on the buildings but the mental well-being of everyone in Canterbury. It was the earthquakes that killed my mum. She's not part and never will be part of any statistics relating to the earthquakes. She's not alone, as there are many Cantabrians who have suffered. Unfortunately, many continue to suffer and battle to get what is rightfully theirs. This photo is very special. Three generations, three generations of love. Given the challenge of writing about a picture that meant something to me, nothing was coming to mind, likely because of the slight panic I felt watching the others writing furiously while I had nothing. I decided to paint my own picture of something I would love. A vision of a white horse starts to emerge, standing proud and majestic, with her head held high, ears pricked and eyes focused on something in the distance, emanating strength, confidence and beauty things I aspire to have, nature's picture-perfect combination of vitality and well-being, and freedom, the freedom to be perfect, just as she is. Even with the torn ear I now see, perhaps a remnant of some previous fight, a physical reminder of her innate resilience, she doesn't have to work on making herself feel better. She doesn't have to feel less than. She's perfect in every way as we all are. In hindsight, I see my picture as a combination of a photo taken of me on my first pony, standing on a small mound, crossed with my daughter's beautiful white pony. We never did find out how Chloe's ear was torn. We just loved her anyway. Unconditionally, as we're meant to. That's not to say we didn't get crossed with her on occasion, sometimes feeling disappointed when she'd refuse a jump for no apparent reason. But my daughter loved her with a passion, no matter what she did. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles. My name is Louise, and this is my treasured possession. The one thing I'd grab if my house was on fire. Dear Grandpop, I wanted to write to you about the violins. I know it has been some years since we have spoken, but whenever I think of violins, I think of you. Someone recently asked me if I could take one thing that I cared about from my home in the case of an emergency evacuation, like if my house was on fire, what would it be? And it would have to be my violin. My violin was never a really expensive one, but it is mine, and it has been for some 37 years. When I needed to change from a three-quarter size violin to a full size, my violin teacher of the time, a nun called Sister Joan, whom I really liked, found this violin in the convent where she lived. We had it refurbished and I began playing it in 1982. I've taken this violin all around the world. There have been times when I've not played it all that much, but it always has been there. Some years ago, I did get the fingerboard refurbished at a wonderful violin shop in Stoke Newington, London, I had met the owner of the shop in an Eastern European fiddle course we played at in the 90s. He was a nice chap. But the man who served me for this recent work was scathing and condescending in his manner towards me and my violin saying it was really just a high-end learner's instrument. I remember his colleague looked on in horror at how he spoke to me. 
Despite this, and because it's mine, I just said, please, I'd like my fingerboard refurbished. All the while thinking that he had been spoiled by working with too many professional string players to whom he was some sort of underling and that he saw me as some sort of low-level player that he could intimidate. That was not going to happen. Violins are funny creatures, and I think like houses, musical instruments choose their owners. The violin chose me, but I would have been a pianist if I'd had my way. I remember playing the piano at your house and wanting to learn. I asked my mum recently why they never got me lessons when it was so clear that I was attached to the piano. When I was 11, I'd stayed a month at my cousin's house when my mum and dad went to Singapore for my dad's work. They'd had a piano and I was always playing it. My aunt had said to my mum and dad that I was going to miss the piano when I left staying at their house. My mum's reply to my question was that there had been no space where to put the piano at our house. And all I could think was, it could have gone in my room and I would have been like a pig in mud. But the violin has offered me friendship and flexibility and creative growth and hope. I remember the pensive mood you would assume when you spoke about the regret you had when, as a child, you took your father's violin out into the garden and left it there. It was ruined by the rain. You said that you would have passed it on to me. The regret I sensed from you was deep. And then there is Madame Louise, your step-aunt on your father's side of the family. The family always knew that Madame Louise was a brilliant violinist and pianist, a socialite of Edwardian Christchurch and New Zealand musical circles. Louise had travelled and trained in Leipzig, Germany at the turn of the 20th century. I have found documentation about her in the national newspapers that covered her social visits and musical performances in New Zealand and internationally. Do you remember that photograph that was on the bookshelf in your lounge of Madame Louise? Your youngest son, my Uncle Boyd, would say that I look like Louise. When Grandma died, she left the photo for me, and she wrote on the back of the photo, For Louise, love from Grandma. Sadly, Louise married a man who, unbeknown to her, was already married. Legend has it that she shut herself off from the world as a result, the shame too much. After doing some research, I'm not certain about the shame, as she is documented as being socially active and musically active after the divorce was announced, but certainly the bigamy was true. Any documentation about the once-was-husband simply stops after the divorce. Maybe he moved countries. I know that your older sister, Aunt Kath, had gone to visit Louise in the 60s, but apparently had had the door shut on her. It is such a sad story with the truth lost to the past, her once-brilliant career invisible to the world. When I was born, you reminded my mum of Madame Louise, a connection my mum had not thought of as it was my dad who had liked the name Louise. And then, by a chance opportunity at primary school, I started to learn the violin, and the violin playing was passed down through the generations. No one in our family had played the violin since Madame Louise. I have tried to get my daughters to see how the violin would go for them, but it didn't choose them. The harp chose Sophia, and the voice chose Erin. And so... The violin has been my voice when I've not had one. You will be pleased to hear that I'm still playing, Grandpa. It's still my voice standing up from the hullabaloo of the other stringed instruments that I play with. I've recently taken to blues fiddle where I feel right at home, like a suit that fits. But equally, I feel at home with something Eastern European or something where I can improvise and let the magic hand of the musical gods play through me. 
The draw of the metallic frequency of the strings is something that grabs at my very soul, and I find that I can always find a tune on any stringed instrument. I always have a story to tell on the strings. Grandpop, you're always in our thoughts. I can see you sitting on the steps of your home up the hill in Nelson, puffing on your rolly, waiting for us to arrive after our long drive journey from Christchurch. Do you remember that you taught me how to roll cigarettes when I was a child? And you know, Grandpop, I have another violin at home. It's a three-quarter 1920s German violin that has a fabulously cheeky personality. Although Sophia no longer plays this instrument, there will be a child somewhere in our family in the future who will play, and when this time comes, the violins are ready and waiting. Much love to you, Grandpop. Louise. They say that these are not the best of times, but they're the only times I've ever known. My name is Robert, and this is my tale to tell. A prized possession. While pondering on the question of what a prized possession of mine might be, I find it hard to name one thing in particular, as there are a number of items that could fit the category. This was going to make it too difficult to narrow down, so I thought it best to take a step back and look at the whole question of prized possessions. I reflected on what makes or what qualifies an object to be a prized possession. For some, it might be an expensive ring or another valuable item. For others, it may be an item of little or no monetary value. I've seen some people clinging to, to me anyway, a seemingly utterly worthless object as if it held some mystical powers, but it has given a special place in their lives. Thinking about this, I conclude that it is not my place to begin to question anyone over their choice of a prized possession. Indeed, it's gross arrogance, as I do not know what makes this object in particular so special and so important to the owner. And as I do so, I'm humbled by the thought, who am I to question why this object is of great value to the owner? I do not know the background or circumstances that surround this thing, yet it must be because of the precious memories associated with it. Yes, that's it. Good memories hold special places in our hearts. They lift us, sustain us, bring us joy, and help us smile. Perhaps there was a person, a time, a place, an event that tied it so indelibly to the owner that they are drawn together forever. So I have found my answer and realized that for most people anyway, it is these memories of people, places, and events that the item gives that are what we really treasure throughout our lives. It is these memories that give us strength and pleasure as we remind ourselves of them. Therefore, in light of my deep philosophical analysis on the subject, <coughs> ahem, what is my treasured possession? It's my teddy bear, of course, given to me by my parents 70 years ago when I went into hospital to have my tonsils out. He was my special friend, and his name was Teddy. How can I best describe Teddy? Well, he, it's always a he, isn't it, with teddy bears, looked just like Winnie the Pooh. He was made, I understand, by Triang, a well-known toy maker in those days. He stands 18 inches tall, it's about 400 millimeters, is made of yellow fur, and yes, he still has his fur and both his eyes. 
I always looked after my toys as I had so few of them. Teddy was always there for me, my go-to cuddle. Little did I know how much more important his comfort would become to me a few years later when, as a lonely five-year-old child, away from home in boarding school, I had Teddy. Teddy has perhaps not much monetary value, but he's very precious to me. My name is Donna, and this is my tale to tell, my most prized possession. Each time I walked as a child, I'd find prized possessions. These treasures were small coloured stones which were smooth and able to fit snugly in the palm of my hand. Coloured quartz and grey wacky ovals would call out to me while wandering along seashores and riverbanks. I'd notice them like a hidden map that only I could see. These stones were important to me. I'd drop them in my trouser pocket and then scurry around to find a container to contain them in once I'd get home. I'd found that to ensure the gloss and vibrancy of colour, they needed to be placed in water. It was water that would make them look polished. So there were small collections under my bed, much like mountaineering tarns on the side of a mountain. Many, many stones were held in the palm of my hand as a child, and this continues for me today. My mother added to this memory, telling me that she was well aware of my fascinations with stones and water. She'd often find out while cleaning the house as she'd notice water sweeping out from under my bed. And when people have offered me gifts for thanks and recognition, it is the stones which I have kept front and centre. These are some of my most prized possessions as they capture both a location and a memory of people who remind me of the importance of the earth and the stories it tells. My name is Karen and this is my tale to tell a picture that means something to me. Every Christmas since we've had children, I've had a centre photo taken of them in December. I love these centre photos. The first ones were of Petra by herself on Santa's knee. Then five years later, William joined her, and two years after him, Alexander was added. Luckily, none of our three were ever fearful of Santa, so I never had to cajole them to sit on his knee and tell him what they wanted for Christmas. It was more of a problem to get them off his knee, as Santa's eyebrows raised higher and higher at the long list of never-ending wants flowing from their mouths in answer to his query as to what they would like for Christmas. Most years we'd go to Ballantyne's to get the Santa photo taken. Ballantyne's Santas are the most authentic. Some of the Santas in the malls are impossibly young-looking, skinny and boy-like, probably university students, and oh-so-not-convincing. The other thing I like about the Ballantyne Santa photos is they have the year displayed in a banner above Santa's chair. I used to get two copies, one to keep and one to give to my dad as part of his Christmas present when he was alive. Our Santa photo is displayed all year round. The newest one gets put in the frame on top of last year's picture, so it's my marker of how much our children have grown each year. We had a Santa photo taken every year for 16 years. Then in December 2015, I announced it was time to go to Bally's to sit on Santa's knee. Oh, we're not doing that again, are we? We're over it, Mum, they protested. Oh, come on, you guys, it's our Christmas tradition. So they humoured me, and off we went. We got to Valentine's and stood in the queue. It was a bit claustrophobic in the grotto, down in the basement. The ceilings were low, and I was praying there wouldn't be an earthquake while we were down there. I looked at all the little kids in the queue around us, dressed in their best clothes, 
holding balloons and lollipops and being super cute. Then I looked at my three, arguing with each other, jostling and bantering and being loud. Something was off. Something didn't feel quite right. Then it was our turn. The boys looked awkward. They were big, too big to sit on Santa's knee. So Alexander sat beside him while William and Petra perched awkwardly on the arms of Santa's chair. Santa looked small beside my three long-legged gangly kids. That's when I knew. They were too big for this. It had run its course and I had to finally concede defeat. We couldn't do this anymore. So the Christmas 2015 Santa photo was our last. It still sits on the shelf in its frame and I love it. Three smiling faces beaming back at me, reminding me all year how lucky I am to have three beautiful, healthy, happy children to treasure. Come away with me in the Come away with me and I will ride you. I am Heather and this is my tale to tell. A precious something. What would I rush into a burning house to save? In other circumstances it would be a human being or a pet. But now I live alone and have no pets. I presume grabbing clothes would be impossible in an outright emergency, so I would take my favourite rings. Each one means something to me, even although I can't fit most of them. Now age and arthritis has ruled out some favourites. Rings have significance. 35 years ago, I gave to my eldest son the most precious thing, a gold ring that had belonged to my grandfather, and then, when he died, to my father. Shortly before my father died, he gave it to me, and I was head-spinningly honoured by that. I was his youngest child. I had given it to my son, Stanford, assuming he would know and value it not only for its quality of gold, but for the heritage. This was when we were all living in England. Over the years since I have been back in New Zealand, I have emailed him and asked if he still values it and I received no reply. Recently I pursued this because it was constantly on my mind. His common-law wife, Carolyn, answered me and said when Stanford got divorced, his daughters rifled through his things and planned to sell some, including the jewellery. I was sickened and shocked at this, but I had to be sure. When my daughter Eleanor visited the UK and Europe very recently, they are in Poland at present, she asked one of his daughters about this, who said she had given it back to Stanford. But Carolyn had said Stanford never wears jewellery, so it is still a mystery and one which leaves a curious ache in my heart. When the first big earthquake came about 4.35 in the morning of 4th September 2010, I was collecting the newspaper outside, Although I had never heard an earthquake before, I knew instantly what it was and that it was big. At first there was no shaking, just this awe-inspiring roar that was coming from the ground in the distance. Against all training from my primary school earthquake drills, where we were taught to seek the outside away from the buildings, I ran back inside to save my new TV. 
But the shaking was so violent I couldn't make it, and I had to hang on to the sides of the door opening, watching my TV with anxiety. I had been prepared to risk the house caving in to save a TV. As it happened, the TV survived, although many other things didn't. As soon as I could, I drove to my elder daughter's house, Miranda. They were shaken, but had no interest in talking to me. My younger daughter, Eleanor, was overseas with her Polish husband at the time. It was just a few days after I had been in hospital, and instead of the house I had been used to, with plenty of emergency supplies, at this point I was in a small flat with no emergency supplies, including water. After being rebuffed by Miranda and her family, I had to search for where there was a store open that would sell water. This was difficult. Many businesses remained shut. But finally I struck gold with a countdown supermarket at Ferrymead. I began this account with my rings, and had it been a fire, I would have grabbed the box. At the time of the earthquakes, I had been forced to leave my house and live in a council flat, which I hated. Most of my things had been sold or disposed of, including my large library of books. That was a very traumatic time when suicide seemed a better option. So my new TV was an essential part of my life, hence its prime importance during the earthquakes. My name is Lynette and this is my tale to tell. My favourite and most treasured piece of jewellery is a diamond and ruby brooch which was left to me by my nana, my mum's mother. She left all her jewellery to my sister and myself. My sister was absent from Christchurch at the time and when I asked my mother if we should wait for her return to divide the treasure, my mother's reply was, she's not here, she won't know. Hence I got to choose what I wanted and she got what was left. I love this brooch for two reasons. The first reason is the exquisite and amazing complexity of the brooch. The two gold bars with small gold balls on the end and the wraparound crossover bar on the diagonal with a diamond set in a star and a beautiful ruby on each side inset in a diamond shape. The jeweller noted the mill grain figurine, which is a delicate embellishment in which fine pliable threads of precious metal are twisted and curled into designs, of which this brooch has many. I see a new feature every time I admire it. With so much going on, you would think this item was as big as your hand, when in fact it's only the size of your little finger. The second reason is it reminds me of my nana and all the fond memories I have of her. Being the only grandparent I ever knew, as her husband and my father's father died before I was born. My father's mother, although alive, was never talked about, and it wasn't until I was 13 when she died that we ever knew of her existence. Nana lived on the main north road opposite Belfast School. She lived there with her sister, my great-aunt, who had lived through the devastating Napier earthquake of 1931 and had photos of it. There's a four-lane road outside what was my nana's house, but in those days she had a front lawn, now Cars Drive where it was. She had her super-long 
oblong side lawn going over half the length of her section and we had many running races there and her huge back lawn where we played ball games. One of my fondest memories is playing on those lawns. Or was I just small in those days and therefore impressed by the size of the lawns? Although I did live on a farm so I knew what a big paddock looked like. Sunday afternoon when I was young was spent visiting relatives and most Sundays we went to Nana's to visit except on birthdays when Nana and her sister came to visit us. My great aunt always drove their beautiful Wolseley car which in later years I was to be the proud owner of. I don't think my Nana ever learnt to drive. Memories of Christmas lunches in her garage with all the relatives the glorious warm sunroom at the back of her house in which hung a portrait of a Maori with full facial tattoos. I am not sure what happened to that picture, which I assume was a print. Looking back, since my great-aunt had lived in Napier, I assume it was hers. However, that still doesn't answer the question of what happened to her. Since we were her only family, I guess we will never know. When staying with my nana, going to the Red Cross to prepare meals on wheels... My nana died the same week I was to announce my engagement, but there were so many happy memories. I don't even remember my nana wearing this beautiful brooch, but I am sure she must have. My daughter's a silver girl and not a gold girl, and I can't say my boys have ever shown any interest in my jewellery. But now I have a granddaughter and a grandson, so hopefully one of them will treasure my lovely pieces, especially my favourite one. My Tale to Tell is produced by me, Stephanie Fruin, and engineered by Peter Rattray at Plains FM Christchurch. The theme tune was composed by Louise Ayling and performed by Louise Ayling, Peter Royal and Stephanie Fruin. If you'd like to take part in My Tale to Tell, contact mytaletotellnz at gmail.com. No life is ordinary. We all have a tale to tell. Memories of our Yeah.